everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, where we're looking at about the style of Invested that was made famous by first Ben Graham in the 1930s. The style of investing that was made famous by yeah. Ben Graham. What, what, what did I you call it? You said Invested, which I loved. Oh. The style of Invested. This is the style of getting invested. It's the style of being invested. <laughs> <laughs> One day we'll figure out what this podcast is all about. But essentially, we already know, it's definitely about creating a practice of investing. Yeah. And it's about getting yourself committed to that practice. It's about, therefore, then practicing. Yes. Which is all the Warren Buffett information and Charlie Munger information. And we tell you that it's pretty different than anything else you're going to hear out there. And it is because we're going to take a fairly unpopular, I would say even radical point of view that says, <laughs> at least I'm taking this. You are. I'm taking this point of view that says that you're not investing if you're not buying assets for some discount to their real value. And if you don't know the real value of something you're buying, you're really not investing. You're just rolling the dice and hoping that the thing goes up. And it's this, the greater, of course... the greater fool theory. The greater right? fool theory. Well, not necessarily. I mean, the value no? could go up if you're lucky. But yeah, you but don't know would, what the value you is. Know? You yeah. I guess it's saying that a greater fool may not be necessary if an, <laughs> you know an, an experienced investor comes along and determines that the value is higher than what you paid for it. You might get some money. But the point is that most people are sold, we think, a total bill of goods by the financial services industry when they pretend that it's investing to put money into things you don't understand in the hopes that they go up for you to make money. In other words, if you have to make if you have to have the asset go up in price in order to make money, then that's a pretty good indication that you're not actually investing. See, I got to say that makes no sense. It really doesn't because if it doesn't go up in price, you have not made any money, right? Wrong. We're we're so, we're coming on to this someday yeah. about the <laughs> but the we concept. we are going to talk about how to value. We're going to finish talking about how to value a company. We are today. We are. You have you have to have some mechanics to figure out the value of a business. But I we're going to give those to you. I guess if you think that a company doesn't need to go up in price, then what's the point of even worrying about the value? We'll oh just my gosh. constantly go around, just sitting around, nothing happens ever. Oh, we broke even. That's all we wanted. Okay, fair question, um, but completely misinformed. So <laughs> let, me, let me tell you that it's very important what we pay for something because what we want is um, to receive a certain level of cash flow from this thing. And the value of the thing is directly related to the cash flow we're going to receive over the time we're in this investment. Are you talking about dividends? We're talking about dividends. We're talking about the company buying back its stock, which gives you a larger ownership percentage. But we're also talking about the company free cash flow that it has made being reinvested by awesome and credible and, and, uh, and talented managers who reinvest it for you and make an even higher return than you could hope to make on your own, which we like as well. Now, in that particular case, either someday the company starts to pay out the dividends and, the, and, and buys back stock, or you sell the company 
for a much, much appreciated value because they've built the size of the company using your money. Do you mean an appreciated price? Yes. Well, value. But with the price that is, that is higher than you paid? Well, I'm going to stick to value because well, although you're right. Well, I can sell something that has a lot of value, but I could sell it for the same price I paid for it. True. Right? True. But I'm going to say that, that we're really interested in the value of the business because Ben Graham told us 85 years ago that the stock market is a place which is very emotional on a day-to-day basis. In other words, it's just a big mass hysteria or mass depression, or maybe everybody's calm. But it could be anything on a day-to-day basis. But what you know for sure is that in the long run, the market is going to put the price at the value. In the long run, it'll do it. So we are very long-run investors. We're extremely long-run oriented. As in, this is how crazy what long is run the we long get. Run? The long run is you'll never sell it. That's pretty long. That's our ideal investment is you're never going to sell it. I find myself mildly speechless about what you just said. <laughs> we are never going to sell. Okay, this is a whole, it's like, it's like exactly what you said before, which is we don't care if the price goes up. Except like times a thousand. Because now you're just going to keep owning something and pass it down to your estate when you die that's your plan well if you make enough money where you can do that then that would be an awesome plan um how would you ever make any money if you never sell anything you own well the key is to understand this really important concept and that is that particularly for you not so much for me although certainly for me too like okay i'm 67 and i'm now you know, well, I'm not. I'm still going to be investing for the next 20 years. As long as my brain's working, I'm going to be investing my money. You're going to be investing for a long time before you start drawing down on it, though. Yeah. Okay. Right. So for the next, let's just say, 30 to 40 years, you are a consumer of companies. Okay, well, that's what I was asking. So the long run is 30 to 40 years? Mm, okay, let's just say. Let's just, to, to put an edge on it, let's just say, yeah, okay, we, we, at some day, 30 or 40 years from now, we'll want to start maybe selling off some of these investments to live on. Got it. But I don't really want to do that. I mean, ideally, 30, 40, 30 to 40 years from now, we've adjusted our portfolio to be producing cash flow from dividends. Okay. Such that we, we have a portfolio of maybe 10 companies when we're 70 years old, and we don't plan on selling any of them. Because they're giving off dividends. They're pouring dividends to us. They're right. pouring that dividends in, in the range of 20%, 30% a year in our invested capital and getting larger every year. So we, we would like to just die with that equity still there, and we can pass it on to our heirs. Here's what I hear. We should buy companies that we intend to hold for 30 to 50 years depending on your age. Okay, let's amend that to reasonable amount of time for your age. <laughs> and then and then when you're getting to the point where you need some income from the from those those companies that you own, you can sell part of them and keep the other ones that have dividends coming off of them. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you never sell. It's just that you wait to sell until you actually want to use it as income. Okay, that's that's not a bad way to look at it. That's pretty realistic, actually. Okay. If I were to be idealistic, I would say that 
ideally, every company we get is a company we want to hold forever. Because a lot of companies don't give dividends. Right. A lot of companies don't give dividends. For example, um, Apple Computer only just recently started producing dividends. Yeah, after like a massive brouhaha about yeah, how exactly. they were just hoarding cash. <laughs> they were hoarding cash. They which were hoarding they cash. were doing. And Microsoft years ago was in the same boat, and um, and they didn't pay dividends. But from the point of view of the, sh- of the guys who who were running the company, speaking to the owners of the company, they would say, like, you know, the guys who Tim Cook might say to, to the shareholders at Apple, we don't really want to pay you the the cash because we're able to use that cash yeah. to expand Apple. And here's the thing. If we give it to you, number one, you have to pay taxes on it unless it's in a tax-protected account of some sort, which kind of sucks because they've already paid taxes on it once. Yeah, yeah. And then second, um, we can use that capital... And we can grow it, in Apple's case, at 25 to 30% a year, which is probably better than you can do. Yeah, and that was the argument he made, that Apple could use it better than the shareholders. Exactly. Which gets some shareholders a little bit unhappy. It <laughs> does. on the other hand, if you don't think that the company can use it well, you probably shouldn't be invested in that company. Exactly. So I guess the, the question for Tim was, um, or the question for investors is, you're going to go out there and you're going to get this great return on my equity of 25, 30% a year, which is stunningly great. My question is, will kind of the point you make, and will the stock price go up to reflect these new earnings mm-hmm. or not, mm-hmm. right? So we don't get the benefit of all that wonderful stuff unless the stock price goes up, unless you buy back stock and increase my ownership or you pay me a dividend, mm-hmm. right? So... Our ideal thing is companies whose price goes up even as they as they grow their earnings by reinvesting our capital, um, and companies that produce dividends, if they can't use all the capital, they'll pay us back the dividends. And, you know, the guy we're following, the guy we're learning from, Warren Buffett, has both kinds of companies in his portfolio. So some are public companies, um, which pay some dividend, maybe not huge, and some are private companies that just produce cash flow. And it comes up to him because he owns the whole company. Mm-hmm. So we're not in that situation. But I got to tell you, Danielle, the, the thing about learning how to do this is that it applies to real estate investments. It applies to buying your own business. It applies to buying a laundromat. It applies to buying a subway franchise. The, the, the metrics that we're learning about investing, the things that we can see in a company that are really make it a good investment... Those apply to any business that we buy as an investor. And that business could be a house that we buy for $100,000 and rent out, an apartment. It can be um, a franchise, like we said. So it can be a lot of different things. It can be private equity. It can be public stocks. And the thing that's so beautiful about what Warren Buffett does and how he teaches us to invest is that he does all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, like we've said, he has farms and real estate and, and private companies and public companies. Yeah, it's an interesting point that I've been thinking about a lot about lately in determining how much time I'm going to put into this learning investing project that I've got going on, um, because there are a lot of other options, as you just said, real estate, franchising, starting your own company, starting your own brick and mortar company, starting your own high growth startup company, investing in other stuff, investing in a friend's deal they've got going on. I mean, there are so many different things if you know, you're lucky enough or smart enough to have saved enough money to actually want to put it somewhere. There are so many things you can do with that money. And what's the best choice? 
And that's kind of a hard answer. And well, I think I think part of it for me is is temperament and like what do you want to do with your time? Like I don't want to run a subway franchise. I just don't. Like there are lots of people who do and that's awesome and it's just not for me and that's also fine, you know? Yep. Well, I've got a good friend of mine that made a fortune doing Domino Pizza places and you know, he worked really hard and now he's got enough money and yeah, it's a great business. It's a great business, but you if, have to know if, what a great business looks like. If you're good like. at it and you like it. But the <laughs> point I'm making is that the thing that makes it a, quote, great business is the same, whether it's Domino's Pizza. Right. Yes, that's what I was trying to get to. Or exactly. the real estate thing. It's a it's the basics of learning how to value it. Exactly. Yeah. And then know what's important about it. And yes. something I think about, sorry, my voice is getting hoarse because I have tonsillitis again. I know, you're so sweet And to now do it's this. like the, what, like the fifth time I've so had it. So don't press it, just come closer to the, the mic. In the last six months. So I have to go to the doctor. Whisper. Find out what's happening with my tonsils. But um, uh, now I lost my train of thought. I think it's, it's, there's just so many different ways that you can do things with your money. And something that I compare it to a lot in my own mind just because my experiences with startups is like how would this work at a startup you know like what where you are literally i think i think startups are much easier for me anyway to get my mind around because it, they're so literally just small like small numbers of people work in a startup mm -hmm. and you can see the mechanics of how a company is built and structured and grows much more easily than you can in a big public company and i think that's something that kind of intimidates me about public companies because they're so large and so complicated and highly structured and it's it's difficult to get your arms around a lot of times even what they do i mean that's something you say all the time that warren buffett says is sometimes it's just too hard and it needs to go in the too hard pile yep and the thing that makes it really cool for us um, when we're looking at public companies is there's Gosh, in the ballpark of eight or nine thousand public companies, the vast majority of which are not big enough for guys like Warren Buffett to invest in. Are not big enough. They're not big enough. They're just not enough equity there for a guy with a hundred billion dollars to get in because the company, the total company, is worth only a hundred oh, million. Oh, that's a good point. So he's deploying so much more money. Yeah. That it's actually difficult to buy into certain kinds of companies. Completely. I mean, if Buffett bought the entire $100 million company, it would be a rounding error on his, on his annual report. Huh. Right? So the, the, the great big guys are all circling around the same, you know, 500 to 1,000 companies. And you and I have the opportunity to go in all 8,000 of them. I mean, we, we can... <laughs> if only. If only I had the money. <laughs> <laughs> but we can go out and find find these companies if we know what we're looking for in the public markets that um, there's not as much competition looking at it, you know? There's not mm, as... That's an as interesting deep point a, as well. Yeah, it, much bigger chance that it could be mispriced, hmm. especially if there's an event going on um, in that industry, which is causing fear the big guys, if they have any money in a company, let's say it's worth $500 million in the market, you'll see the big guys rotate out of those companies at the snap of a finger, and they will move off to bigger companies that are more liquid. Because hmm. um, they're worried about being able to sell when the time comes. Exactly. If the fear grows, they're going to get stuck. Yeah. And so they run first. Because they have so many shares to sell. Yeah, exactly. They're going to shoot first, aim later. And, um, and that makes the smaller companies very volatile 
even when they don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. So their prices are moving up and down, which takes us back to that whole point that Buffett's making is that risk and volatility are not the same thing. This company ha- could have absolutely nothing wrong with it. It could be bouncing, its stock bouncing around like crazy just because the big guys are moving in and out of that part of the market. So I've been thinking a lot. This is not on topic for our valuation discussion, by the way, but you brought it up. I've been thinking a lot about the risk equals volatility question, Mm. which a lot of people would not call a question. They would call it a standard statement of fact. A known fact. Gospel in the economics world. They would, a lot. I know, I've I've been told. Probably 95%. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Ballpark. It's, that's how that's how out in the woods we are. It's an interesting dinner conversation, let me tell you. <laughs> when somebody informs me that that is just how it is, and I go, well, you know, I can't say I know that much about it, but I'm starting to learn, and maybe let me just say a couple things, and it's like, no, no, no. Here, I can um, give you the killer if you want to at a dinner conversation. Sure, go ahead. Okay, so Please. somebody says... Killer by Phil Town. Oh, yeah. Somebody says um, that... Volatility is the same thing as risk. What you can point out is what Buffett pointed out. He says, okay, let me see if that's true. Then if a a company has the same volatility as the whole market and it's priced at $45, then the risk of that company is the same as the risk of the market. Right, so risk is even. They they would say the beta is the same as Wait, the market. Wait, sorry, say that again. I somehow I'm not getting it. Okay, so the stock market moves around. Um, the stock market being the S&P 500, let's okay. say. It's moving around whatever it's doing. And companies that move around right with it have the same, quote, volatility. Right, okay. As the market. Okay. Therefore, they have the same risk as the market. Volatility is equal to risk, according to everybody, right? So they have the same risk as the market. So here's this one company that's doing that, and it's priced at $45. And then something happens completely unrelated to this company, except in the most peripheral sort of way, like, let's say, cotton burns in Egypt and this company makes T-shirts. Mm-hmm. So for a year or so, the cotton prices are going to go through the roof. This company, on that news, and because it's small, the big guys get out in anticipation of a rout in T-shirt companies, and this thing falls to $15 a share. Now, meanwhile, the S&P hasn't gone anywhere. It's just now, all of a sudden, the volatility of this business is massively larger than the S&P 500. And suddenly the risk on this company has gone to the roof. It's suddenly this massively risky company because it's got this volatility. Well, that kind of makes sense if you consider that some event that has affected its value has happened. But we would argue that the event emphatically has not affected the long-term value of the business. Long-term value. Sure, which is all we're interested in. Okay, so here is what I figured out. But wait, about, wait, wait okay. yeah, i got to okay, get to the punchline. Okay, okay. So here's what Buffett said. So you, in order to believe that volatility and risk are the same thing, you'd have to believe that the day before at $45, that company was a, ri- a less risky situation than buying it today for $15. The same company. That would be like saying that if I sell you my car for $100,000 yesterday, but I'm willing to sell it to you for $10,000 today, the car yesterday was a better deal. No. The only way that that's a correct analogy is if the car had a total transmission breakdown overnight. Let's just say it had a flat tire. Well, those are different levels of calamities. Right? Okay. I mean, the, 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 what I'm putting out is a, a condition that does happen in companies on a regular basis. It's a flat tire. It's temporary. 
It's not some massive mechanical breakdown. It's just there's nothing wrong with the company at all. It hit a nail. I don't think that economists have never thought of that. I mean, they understand that in the long term, this company may recover from whatever um, thing that, you know, that happened to it, from whatever that event is. The point is of the risk equals volatility. Okay, can I tell you what I figured out now? Because okay. I might be an economics genius. Okay, I just gave you what Buffett said. No, okay, it bounced off, I think. No, I understood it. Oh. Do you think... No, no, no. Okay, let me repeat for you what Buffett said. So what he's saying is that that event that happened that caused the price to crash did not actually affect the underlying value of the company. That's the answer that and Buffett the, gives. And the punchline is that one guy paid $45 for it and thinks that the other guy's getting a worse deal at 15 which is... Uh, at least for normal people. And here's what the guy who thinks nonsensical. That, that guy thinks this company may not recover. That's what that guy is thinking. Right. He's and not thinking this company's definitely well, going to recover. Can I tell you why he, Yet uh, I think that other guy. But is the reason idiot. he thinks that the company might re not recover is primarily because he doesn't know anything about the company. He can't tell the difference between lost transmission and a flat tire, and therefore. He's not willing to buy this $100,000 car for $10,000 because it has a flat tire, which is or, idiotic. I'm, or he's not an idiot, and he's operating on a very short-term basis. Well, that's exactly the so, case. So, right, that's he's exactly not an the idiot. case. He's not an idiot. He's saying, I have to get to somewhere right now, and this car has a flat tire, and it's useless to me. Perfect. Perfect. That's perfect. Okay. Damn, that was good. Now can I tell you what I... Good Lord, yeah, yeah. I'm... I might be a genius. You don't even know. Okay. <laughs> I, I think you are. Here's what it is. There are two different kinds of risk that people are talking about when they talk about risk equals volatility. In one kind, risk does equal volatility. Wait, is it volatility equals risk? Yeah. Volatility well, equals Both risk. ways. Um, and in the other kind, they are incorrect and Buffett is correct. And I think that we've actually basically just said it. But the two kinds are... Short-term risk, which is if you are a short-term investor and you may need to sell at any given moment, then you do have incredible risk if a stock is more volatile than other stocks right. because you've got it going up and down. And if I need to sell in 15 minutes, that stock might be down and that's really risky for me. Whereas if the stock is flatlined always, you know what's going to happen to it, never changes... That stock is a winner for me because I can depend on knowing I can sell in that 15 minutes. Now, the other kind of risk is the systemic value risk that you were talking about, which is long term, that company is going to bounce back from its event. The underlying value is still there. You can fix the flat tire. It's not real. It's that volatility doesn't actually matter because long term, you can you know that the volatility will even out and you can sell it when you want to. So it's really, I think, just people are talking, they're using the same terms, but meaning different things. You have no idea how brilliant that is, I don't think. I, I, have I informed read, you before I said it of what a genius I you am. You are a genius. That, I have read <laughs> so many different things. We're going to get emails on this, but I've read so many different things. You know, the, the opinions of, of modern portfolio apologists who are looking for maybe it's the weak version or the strong version of modern portfolio theory. But I've never read anybody realize that it's all about the time frame. If your time frame is short, your relationship to risk is vastly different 
and much more related to volatility than it is if my time frame is long. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. I think as that's say, the only way. Doesn't matter transmission or flat sense. tire, the car's not working. Because I've been thinking, like, smart people think that volatility equals risk. They can't be entirely wrong. Okay, fine. You can say they could be entirely well, wrong. What, what happens, I'm going to assume that they're not entirely wrong. Well, it depends on what you're trying to do. If, if what you're trying to do is manage other people's money in a way that is very defendable um, and your goal isn't so much a, a good rate of return as it is to just hold on to assets under management, which I, that description, by the way, would suit 95% of the people who are managing money out there. That your goal is to hold on to assets under management. Exactly. Because <laughs> you, get, you paid get paid fees, On assets right? under management. Okay. Yeah. And so if you can just stay with the markets and shadow the markets, you're likely to be able to hold on to assets under management. People won't punish you because the market went down, right? And they would expect their fund would go with it a little bit. And so um, that's the way most people manage money. And it's the rare, rare person who manages money according to your second view of volatility, the longer term view. And the predominant reason for that is it's very difficult for investors to hang in there while the guy fixes the tire. Yeah, it sucks. You know, you're just waiting there. I don't want to wait for AAA. Maybe while you're waiting there, you see another tire's flat. And then you, oh, this is such a dog, you know. <laughs> this is only worth $5,000 now because it has two flat tires. And, and that's sort of, from our point of view, it's a kind of craziness. It's almost a kind of insanity that takes over the market. This short-term view where everything is judged on a quarter-to-quarter -quarter basis and, you know, a year is a long time to not make any money for your clients. If the market's going up, you're going to get fired. And that view, that means that there's very few people who actually manage money according to this concept that we're teaching you guys. Almost none. I mean, yeah, I'm really, I can count the good ones on a couple of hands and toes. There must be a reason for that, right? Like, it's not because it doesn't work, because those people are extremely successful. So extremely. it must be that it's really hard to stay with it. It's really hard to hold on to your investor's capital. So think about... <laughs> that's, the, that's probably that's the, the catch. reason, yeah. So think about how you start off. You start off as an investor and you've got a million dollars from some people who trust you. And we call them the three Fs, right? Friends, family, and fools oh, yeah. who give you the money. And then and you put together a million dollars and you do well with it because you're following this strategy and they're not paying attention. They've already written it off. That's their Las Vegas money. And so you're making great returns. And then what happens next is you are able to raise money from a lot larger investors. And these much larger investors are indeed paying attention. Typically, they are other funds, pension funds. Who also have shorter time short views. horizon. With their own investors. They are funds of funds, which have started for the last 20 or 30 years. And, um, and what funds of funds do is just invest in other funds. Yep, they're going to get the hot fund and know that you're going to cool off and then they're going to move it. So as soon as you cool off, um, which is to be expected if you're buying companies and hoping they go down in price so you can buy more, you're expecting to cool off. And so you cool off and the next thing you know, somebody's saying, give me back my $50 million. And then you got to sell at a, at a loss and that creates a bad looking result. Yeah. So it's just it's just fascinating, but there are very few people that have control. In fact, I'll just tell you a quick story and we'll wrap up. Warren Buffett was managing money on the Buffett partnerships. He had five of them starting in the 1950s. But by late 1969, now this is just my opinion, 
<laughs> something happened which caused Buffett to shut down these five partnerships and leave the money management business entirely. He shut them down, took all of his own personal capital, and bought Berkshire Hathaway stock, right? He and hasn't said why he did that? He didn't say it in the terms I'm going to tell you. Okay. You know, um, I'm thinking that the reason he did it is because just right about that period of time, um, the market was stumbling around and Buffett was being very uh, defensive and wasn't making a great return after over a decade of phenomenal rates of return, you know, 30% plus. And this defensiveness created fear in the investors in the Buffett partnerships who saw all of a sudden that he wasn't making this huge return. And they decided either he's stopped paying attention or he's lost his touch or you name it, right? Mm -hmm. As people got nervous because the market was moving along pretty good. And so they started to say, give me my money back, or they started to question his investment strategies, whatever. And I think he just said, I don't need to deal with this anymore. And so he gave them all back their money, mm -hmm. and he bought Berkshire Hathaway stock and took over the whole corporation so that people could only take their money in and out of the stock, which would adjust the stock price up and down, but wouldn't affect the amount of capital that Buffett had to invest at all. So he basically made, made the investors secondary market investors instead of being yeah. primary. Yeah, genius. Genius. And got away from all of the issues of having to please people and keep this steady performance going. He could sit in cash for a couple of years at a time and not have to worry about a bunch of investors shouting at him. And that's what he did. So on that little basis, let's take one last shot at valuing our lemonade stand. Just for a couple minutes, okay? And then we can come back to it in the next one. <laughs> I know we, um, we went all the okay, way through it let's, again. Let's do this. I'll, I was going to sort of summarize what I've figured out about these numbers. So let's end on that and then get actually get into the numbers next time. Okay. End of the numbers next time. Okay. Because I wanted to run this by you. So we were talking about the um, what you called the big four growth rate numbers. Right. We talked about those first. Right. Then we moved away from those and we started talking about the four numbers that you use to calculate margin of safety. Correct. And I got very confused between those two different sets of four. Because and so they happen to be four each. They happen to be four each, and I think they're in the wrong order because the big four growth rates are used to calculate one of the numbers in the margin of safety calculations. Okay, so the right order would be... So I think from what you've said, and just tell me if this is right... We've got, for margin of safety, first number that you get is the earnings for the trailing 12 months. Right, now which, this is to calculate the margin of safety. To calculate the margin of safety. Trailing 12 months earnings, which you And that of, you just pull off from you your... Pull off of a website. Website. That, yeah, and, and then you make sure it's not way out of line for the previous 10 years. Okay, good point. Then you have, the next number is the growth rate of earnings, which is looking into the future by using the past growth rate. True. And that is an actual number that we can get, but we are not going to use the actual number we can get because what we want to do is sort of come up with a amalgamation number from the big four growth rate numbers. Very good. So Let that's where they come in. So please restate. The, the growth rate of earnings is what you're talking about. You could just look at a website that would calculate the long-term growth rate of earnings. 
or last year's growth rate of earnings. Yeah, because I couldn't or figure out why you kept talking about calculating five it years, when they give it to you. you. They'll just give it to you. Oh, last year earnings grew 12%, and yeah. the 10-year growth rate for earnings is 10%. I don't want to calculate anything if I don't okay. have to. Except there's a problem, and that is that you want to see companies that are, are predictable in their growth as much as possible. And we don't want to use a growth rate in earnings that's being juiced by shortchanging other aspects of the financial statement. So, for example, a company can juice its earnings by, by simply squeezing its, its employees so badly that, you know, 10,000 of them have to quit. And suddenly for a year or two, you have much less cost and your earnings go up. Now, that might not be sustainable, right? Much less moral. So you, you have to be able to look at other things as well. And what we found is if you look at these other three things in conjunction with earnings. The other three growth rates. Other three growth rates. Then you come up with a much more accurate long-term number. Okay. And those three things, as you said our book value. I don't know if you said it. I did not. Okay. Well, what are they? They are sales growth. I'm just reading them. I don't remember <laughs> them. They are sales growth rate, earnings growth rate, free cash flow growth rate, and book value growth rate. Yeah. And actually, so that is a subset of, of margin of safety number two, yes. which is growth rate of earnings. Yes. Very confusingly. Yes, it is. I see. I see the confusion. Okay. And then you, you look at these four growth rates, and I think on our lemonade stand, we said that they were something like 13, 13, 15, and 20. And so, um, and I, I did that from memory. How close did I get? I don't know if that's right. I think it's right. 13%, 13%, 15%, and 20% ballpark were the growth rates. So now you're looking at these and you're saying, okay, well, what would be a conservative growth rate for the future if all I'm doing is looking into the past? And you say, well, maybe 13%, right? It's the lowest of the group. But that's not good enough. In order to find the correct growth rate, you have to use the past to give you an idea if it's fairly predictable. But you have to look out the front window of the car to drive the car. You can't drive it looking out the back window of the car. So you have to look into this business. And that's where it's important that you know that it, you're capable of understanding it and it has durability, that it has characteristics that make it really durable. So that what happened in the past is very likely to continue to happen in the future. And if you have that, then it gets relatively easy to make a decision about the value of the business. For example, C's Candy has been growing at 4% a year for 50 years, let's say. Well, it lets you make a strong decision about the estimated growth rate of earnings in the future. Exactly. I don't know if it helps you figure out the value all by itself. Oh, well, this is key to figuring out the value. Okay. Right, okay. very key. So if, if, if we know C's candy has been growing at 4% a year, just basically the cost of living for, you know, 50 years, it makes, you'd have to look into the future and see that something's going to change about people's candy habits <laughs> in order to not assume, not have a reasonable assumption that this is going to continue to just go along like that. It stops being the Christmas gift of choice <laughs> in our family. <laughs> so we, we want to make it that easy, right? So that's the, that's the way we would find the earnings thing. And okay. then the other that makes yeah. sense to me. Okay, and then cool. the third one is, which we haven't really talked about, is price to earnings ratio, which is a, well, we did talk about it, I guess. Um, and the average of that is... 15 times 
earnings. Mm-hmm. The average for the big companies, the, for, the S&P for big public companies, right, is fifteen times earnings. So that's just a, a marker to look off of. And I literally the other day just Googled price to earnings ratio of Whole Foods, and Google lovely just gives me a little box with the answer in it right there. It was so easy. It's getting to where you can Google any, almost any of these numbers. And yeah, I didn't even up. have to like find it on a website. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, and just one more point on the on the multiple, what we call the price-earnings ratio, is that the average of the S&P 500 is 15, but those same companies, if they're private and were sold, would probably be about 7.5. So a private company tends to go for about half the price of a public company for the same growth rate and the same earnings. Because it's not liquid, which is a huge advantage for people to trade in and out, which 95% of these guys are trying to do. And there's a possibility that you didn't learn something about the private company that wasn't disclosed. Mm-hmm. Whereas a public company, you you know, the executives go to jail if they don't disclose things. Although it happens. <laughs> it does indeed. <laughs> but it is, it is a lot more of a risk in a private company. Yep. Yep. So there's a fourth number to calculate this margin of safety shading thing that we're working on. Yeah. So let's talk about that next time. Okay, we'll talk about that next time. It's called the MAR. Oh, and great. It means minimum acceptable rate of return. <laughs> and we'll talk about that next time. All right, we got we we just gotta go because your voice is gonna disappear and we really <laughs> that was pretty cool all by itself anyway. So I think we're all done. Time to go play. <laughs> Bye everybody. See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you got to do to go is enter the special podcast code Stockpile, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, Stockpile, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion, and it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.